Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to have Michael Bryant on the show again. Mike is Professor of History and Legal Studies at Bryant University in Rhode Island, and last time he was here, we talked about his book on the trial of perpetrators working in the Operation Reinhardt camps. His new book project is something different, a textbook called A World History of War Crimes, published by Bloomsbury Press. In a brief 240 pages, it moves from the ancient Near East to American responses to 9-11. It's packed with detail, and interested readers will learn a lot about the contents of treaties and agreements and ideas. But I have to say it's the interpretive framework of the book that I find most interesting. So we'll spend the next 45 minutes or an hour uh, and try and touch on both parts of the book. Um, as we talk to Mike about, um, about the evolution of ideas of war crimes and, and, and attempts by people and societies to put a limit on the extent to which what kinds of violence are accepted and tolerated and viewed as ethical. Um, and so we'll do that for the next hour. So Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us again on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks, Kelly. It's great to be back. So usually I start by asking guests to say something about themselves. Uh, but we've already done that the last time. So so I'd like to frame that question a bit differently. You're trained as a lawyer and as a historian. And so I'm wondering if you could say so much about something about how your legal training impacts what you do as a historian. Oh, goodness. That's a $64,000 question. That yeah, in two like minutes that. or less with no ums <laughs> or pauses. <laughs> yeah. That, that is, that's a difficult question to ask, although it's one that I should be prepared, of course, to answer because it, it does come up from time to time. I'm actually of the view that that the methods of the lawyer or the jurist on the one hand and the historian on the other uh, are, are are similar in the mm-hmm. sense that we're both concerned with, with evidence. Uh, this is what sets history apart from uh, novel writing, for example, or poetry, is that we... Uh, Although we might be interested in a rhetorical flourish from time to time, we are still very much uh, attached to, to, to the factual record. We need to make cases, just like lawyers who are representing clients uh, have to, to, to make a case backed by, by evidence. Uh, now, they might interpret it in a way that's favorable to their, their position. But nonetheless, in both cases, whether it's a lawyer or an historian, we are moored to evidence. And so I think there's a natural affinity between law and history. I don't think that it's an accident that the most popular degree, and this has been the case for 50 or 60 years, the most popular degree for people who go to law school is is history because the methods, I think, are are consonant with each other. Um, In my own case, I think that my my legal background led me in the direction of, of this current book project, interestingly enough, and it actually goes back to uh, lectures that I did when I was a, an Air Force captain, a JAG, working in Germany. And I, I did lectures for, for troops who were being deployed in support of uh, Operation Desert Storm, uh, which was the war in Iraq in 1991. Uh, and I ha- had to you know, provide them with a briefing on uh, the law of armed conflict, specifically the Geneva Conventions and Hague Conventions. And uh, I was really struck every so often I would get um, – Get questions from some of the the younger troops in particular who were astonished that there were any limitations to what they could do in battle. 
And uh, so the concept of a Geneva Convention or Hague Convention was very, very foreign to them. And they they bristled at the idea that they could be uh, be restricted in the amount of violence they could inflict upon upon the enemy. And I was very struck by that at the time. And, and I think to a certain extent, that experience planted a seed in my head that I returned to uh, 20 years, 15 to 20 years later, in planning this world history of war crimes as a textbook that would reach hopefully a fairly broad audience. This is my, I hope, my intention uh, to to acquaint uh, you know, uh, readers with the fact that throughout world history, war has never or rarely been uh, a free-for-all. It has usually been embedded within a larger framework that has tended to impose constraints upon what armies can could do to uh, to their enemies, to other other soldiers, as well as to to civilians in combat. So that I, I think that's a, a a very pragmatic, a very direct and concrete connection between uh, my my former career uh, as a uh, as a lawyer and um, and this project that I've uh, most recently been working on. You mentioned that this is intended to be a textbook. So so so. How is writing a textbook different from writing a more writing a monograph that's aimed more topically or aimed at a different audience? How did you approach the process, um, or did you approach this process differently? I certainly did. Uh, for, for one thing, for me at any rate, I, I can't speak in, in terms of other people's experiences who've tried to to tackle textbooks. I, I found it a lot easier. Um, when you're writing a monograph, you have to just amass enormous amounts of, uh, of primary source documentation, which typically involves, for those of us who do European or, or foreign uh, work, we have to go to archives overseas. It can be very expensive and time-consuming, and um, uh, it involves an enormous expenditure of, 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 you know, of labor and, and focus and attention. Uh, in terms of... A, of, a, of of making that transition from writing monographs to, to textbooks, I find the textbook to be um, a simpler chore, a simpler task. For me, it just involved amassing a lot of, of secondary source information, some primary source uh, material as well, but, but things I could typically locate through, if not through my library, then through interlibrary loan. And so I actually had just stacks and stacks of, of books arranged on my couch. I used the old, the old Raw Silver <laughs> method, like Raw. Paul Hilberg said that he, he used a, a, a card table in which to arrange you know, his materials chronologically and topically. And so I, I, you know, following Rawls' uh, um, a technique, I, I used our couch. And so I had the ancient material on the furthermost you know, left part of the couch on that end and, and then moved progressively towards the modern era, you know, the further right that you moved on the couch, then uh, the closer you got to the present time. Uh, and I found this to be uh, much, much easier. In fact, I was able to write the textbook within just a few months. It took me, I think, if it just in terms of heavy-duty heavy writing. I did the rough draft. It was about 155,000 words by the time I was done. I did it in the summer, uh, so June, July, August. I was able to knock it out for the most part. And, of course, I polished it and, and did some editing uh, in the months ensuing uh, after the completion of the draft. But I, I was surprised how quickly it went. Once I had you know, some idea of what I wanted to do, and I was able to set, set this thing up both uh, spatially you know, on my couch in my study, so I could see it, and it would just 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 seeing the physical books kind of imprinted on me, some sense for of the flow for the books mm -hmm. that when I began writing it, just uh, 
it went almost effortlessly. Uh, far, far, it was far easier for me than, than the monographs, the two monographs I've written prior to the textbook. But of course, what you're doing with the textbook is you're largely summarizing the work of many other people. You're trying to convey to your readers a sense of the uh, of the landscape of mm-hmm. of the field. And so, for, for me, it involved you know, summarizing the work of a wide range of, of scholars, not just uh, not just lawyers, jurists. Um, but also, you know, archaeologists and uh, specialists in in violent studies, and criminologists, um, um, anthropologists, cultural anthropologists, uh, physical anthropologists, uh, and then trying to to you know, digest some of the m- the more important works that have been produced uh, on the topic of of war and war crimes and history, and then communicate that to the audience as, as, as forcefully as, and directly as, as I can. So, so I want to ask you about a couple of the words in the title. Um, and, and the first one is the obvious one. Um, is it possible to say what a war crime is? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is. Uh, but of course, when you're trying to write a world history of war crimes, then you get <laughs> all kinds of definitional issues yeah. because Concept, of course, didn't really didn't really exist until much, much later. Um, and I, I tried to make that clear in the textbook. Mm-hmm. You know, the concept or crime, and in fact, the concept of a crime is, is itself, at least in our our sense of the term, is relatively recent. It grows out of in, in the West, at least, it grows out of um, Roman canon law and the concept of of, of certain offenses against uh, against God and against against the Church, which. Uh, were difficult to expunge through the penitential cell, you know, through through doing penance, and, and so this, this idea of, of grave offenses that, that were particularly jarring and, and, and particular both to the community and to the Almighty um, grew into a concept of of, um, of, of crime, and it, and it originates in a sense of, of, of very serious sins. Um, so even at that point, the notion of a crime. In our sense, was uh, uh, at the very best, it was inchoate. It was newly formed. It, it had not really assumed the kinds of uh, proportions that that, would, that it would later take in um, uh, in the history of law. And certainly, when you go back and look at ancient cultures, whether it's it's ancient Sumeria, um, you know, the, the, the Mesopotamian cultures of ancient Babylon, if you look at the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans, even their conceptions of crime were very, very different from ours. They did not distinguish between Two areas of the law that we distinguish between, which are you know, private acts like torts, and civil wrongs, personal injuries, which are typically uh, dealt with through compensation, through through lawsuits and compensation, and offenses in which the community recognizes the gravity of the, the offense uh, as being uh, uh, directed against society, so that the government, as a representative of society, uh, presumes to exercise jurisdiction over that offense, and instead of the payment of damages, you have some form of a um, punishment. You know, so the, pay, you know, the payment of a, of a very, mm-hmm. very steep fine, mm-hmm. uh, but more usually something more painful. Uh, for us, it's incarceration, and in the old days, it would involve uh, more corporal forms of punishment, which could be quite grisly, as you know. Uh, but but that distinction grows up much much later in early modernity and didn't really exist as such in the ancient cultures that I explore in the first several chapters of the textbook. So yeah, it's 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 a difficult concept. But but the fact that you can't really speak of war crimes in our sense of the term 
And history does not mean that there were not normative constraints imposed on war. And, and that was the thrust of my approach to, to this project. I wanted mm-hmm. to see how it was that societies tried to, to limit the carnage of battle. And to a certain extent, the, the voice of that young soldier back in 1992, who was expressing astonishment that there were actual <laughs> restrictions in what he could do uh, to the enemy in combat, I think that voice was still chirping in my mind uh, as, as I approached this project. Yeah, and, and that, that one theme comes through really strongly in, in the book. And, and what I, while you don't spend a lot of time on the ancient Near East, um, and, and I guess Mediterranean world. Uh, I found that section particularly interesting. Could could you talk a little bit about where those or where the limitations on violence, where people in that period understood the limitations on violence to come from, and to what degree those limitations actually worked? As I discovered, you know, delving into the uh, the secondary literature. Uh, on on the ancient world, the specific focus on warfare. I, what became clear is that in one culture after another, um, constraints on war arose from religion. And the further back we go, the closer and closer, and the more direct, the most more proximate this connection between between religion and and warfare was. And so, if you, if you whether it's Shang China. Or, uh, or ancient Sumer, you find at the very origins of, um, of human communities and, of course, eventually city-states, the rise of, of, uh, of urban uh, environments, you will find that religion is driving so many of, uh, of the restrictions that a culture imposes on the waging of war. So my, the short answer to your question is that religion is the cradle, insofar as we can tell, of of uh, these limitations on war. Now, now, that doesn't mean that a humanitarian uh, religious perspective informs these restrictions. I, I don't think that was the case at all. And in fact, I, I try to try to demonstrate in the book that humanitarianism arises much, much later in the history of civilization as a uh, as a motive, as a as a, uh, as a uh, driving uh, force behind restricting war. Early on, religion was primarily ceremonial. It was designed to try to um, Align uh, the physical and social world with, uh, with with the supernatural world, with the with the cosmos in particular, and uh, so this required uh, intensive attention through the priesthood in particular to uh, regulating society in such a way as to bring it into alignment with um, with the cosmic order, with the, with the supernatural world. So all actions had to coincide with that higher reality as as the culture understood or interpreted that reality. Uh, and this uh, applied to all areas of the culture, including, of course, warfare, so that war had to be fought in a certain manner consistent with the religious worldview of the culture. And that is true of China. It's true of ancient India. It's really true of, of, of every society uh, in the ancient world, that certainly that I looked at. I did not have a chance to, to uh, because of, of uh, page limitations, I wasn't able to look at the Mesoamerican realm, mm. uh, the Aztecs, the Mayans, the Toltecs, and so forth. But again, that, that would be another area that is applicable as well. And you, you also find a kind of a law of war arising in Mesoamerica as well. 
in the ancient world. This seems to be almost a, uh, a universal feature of these cultures, is, is the embedding of normative constraints on warfare within a larger religious framework. And you address, you, you talk about that in that chapter, you talk about it with Rome, um, and one of the kind of interesting uh, consistencies there is a sense in which the limitations on violence that you apply to people in your own community or, or, or in at least your own family of communities are different than those people who are outside of their communities. And I was really struck by that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It's one of the more, more important uh, themes of the book. There, there are several themes that I think are prominent, mm -hmm. and that's uh, certainly one of them. Again, if we look at, at, um, at the history of warfare and of the law of war comparatively, what, what we see, again, this is transcultural in one civilization after another, is a tendency to, to release constraints and conflict with uh, cultural outsiders. So you know, the Greeks, of course, distinguished between um, bet between themselves, you know, cultural Greeks, members of the Greek city-states, and and the barbarians, individuals who who uh, uh, emanated from an entirely different uh, uh, linguistic and cultural tradition than the Greeks. And, and not surprisingly, they uh, tended to disregard their law of war, their constraints on warfare, when they were going to war against the barbarians. Uh, certainly true for the Romans as well. Uh, the Romans who were, uh, were were certainly not patsies when it came to fighting against anybody. They were, they were extremely ferocious in their warfare. We still use this term uh, uh, a Roman war. A Roman war today means a, a war that's just fought with all, almost without inhibition. It's still a phrase that is retained in our lexicon. It goes back to ancient Rome. They were extremely violent in their warfare. But if you look at their military conflicts, uh, the Roman wars that were the most uh, Ferocious and fearsome were wars fought against non-Latin people, so people outside uh, of, the, of the Mediterranean basin. And the further the Romans went in their conquests outside of uh, the Mediterranean, the more uh, more brutal and the more savage their style of warfare tended to be. Again, because they're distinguishing between between Latinate peoples with whom they had something in common culturally and those who were outsiders. And again, this reproduces itself also in, in the church's uh, attitudes during the Crusades, uh, in which crusading armies um, um, fought so-called mortal wars. Guerre mortelle was, was the phrase that was used. These are mortal wars in which uh, the law of war was simply jettisoned in dealing with, uh, with, with the Muslims or, or dealing with heretics like the Albigensians really dealing with it with anybody who was outside that uh, that European Christian cultural sphere they were they were liable to being dealt with uh, uh, um, remorselessly without any uh, restriction without any normative constraint to, to temper and mitigate the, the violence so we see this you know, even in, in the modern era it comes yeah. down even to into our own time uh, in which uh, individuals who are deemed to be outside um, um, outside the boundaries of protection afforded by the culture's legal system are dealt with uh, severely. Uh, so this is one of the accelerants, I try to argue in the book, to the commission of war crimes, you know, waging war against the outsider. This is the ideology which the <clears throat> European colonists brought with them to the New World, and which they, they applied in their dealings with 
uh, with the Aztecs and with the native peoples in South America, and certainly the North American colonists too, and their dealings with uh, with native peoples, uh, beginning with the colonization of, uh, of New England, and of course in, in Virginia as well, dealing with native peoples there, we see that that willingness to to disregard limitations and to uh, and to practice extreme forms of violence against uh, the cultural outsiders. And, the, and that's also true, and, and you actually don't, probably for word limits, don't spend a lot of time on Islamic cultures, but you do, but you do comment on, on Islamic attitudes toward, toward violence and warfare in the early part of Islamic right. history. And, and they have a similar kind of, I don't know if division is the right word, but distinction between insiders and outsiders. Very, very, uh, very much, yeah. This, this concept of the, uh, the peoples of the book. <clears throat> um, we, we, we know from, from the historical record that, that Islamic culture, um, especially in the 7th and 8th centuries, in, in, in the years after, after the 7th and 8th centuries too, but especially during that pivotal and kind of formative uh, time of, of, of Islam, uh, Islamic cultures tended to, uh, to moderate their policies uh, of, of warfare when it involved uh, individuals who were, again, considered to be more culturally connected to, to Islam. The, the peoples of the book who were uh, people of Jewish descent and, uh, and, and Christians, individuals who shared a common text uh, with, with, uh, with the Muslims, were, were typically dealt with far more mildly in, uh, in warfare than, than, again, a cultural outsiders, individuals who did not uh, share that, uh, that, that overlap with Islamic culture. And uh, that, that distinction arose fairly early in the history of the, the Islamic law of war. Yeah, and, and we're taping this interview in March of, of, in, of 2017, and you cannot get away from kind of cultural assumptions of, or ideas about or histories of Islam in the modern world. So, so what can you tell us about um, attitudes toward violence in that early, kind of early, as in the formative period of Islamic culture, Islamic culture, of course, uh, arose much later uh, historically than either Christianity or Islam, and it arose at a time when there were already um, you know, pre-existing religious groups in, uh, in the, on the Arabian Peninsula uh, against whom uh, early. Uh, early Muslims uh, engaged in military conflict. And these individuals uh, were regarded by, um, by early Muslims as being active opponents, as being uh, oppositional figures to, to the truth of, of Islam. And they were dealt with fairly severely, um, again, because they were uh, outsiders. And yet, we see already at the origins of Islam a tendency to extend a certain degree of protection through their law of war, which was connected with the Quran and, and with the, the teachings of Muhammad, to extend certain protections to prisoners of war in particular. And uh, this would eventually become an area of contestation within Islam, but, but, uh, but, er, but it's fairly clear from early on that the major jurists within the Islamic uh, cultural sphere, uh, believed that, that one's duty when a war captive fell under your control was to, was to, was to care for that individual and to ensure their safety. 
um, which may come as a surprise, I don't know, but may come as a surprise to some individuals today mm. who, you know, based upon 9-11 and, and, and ongoing acts of terrorism by, by extremists, might think of Islam as just being inherently violent in, in its, uh, its style of warfare. But again, the historical record is a corrective to, to that impression. Uh, and in fact, uh, Islamic culture extended uh, very, very pronounced uh, uh, protections to, to war captives, to POWs, and I think far more so certainly than either the Greeks or the Romans did. Huh. The Greco-Roman tradition was that, that everything within, uh, within battle uh, is, is a spoil of the victor. So that if a, if a city is laid under siege and resists uh, the siege, then everybody, uh, all, the, all of the combatants, the male combatants and non-combatants can be killed, and then the women can be enslaved along with the children. And um, we don't find the same uh, you know, level of disregard for, for the safety and well-being of prisoners of war in the early early phases of, uh, of Islamic culture, it's, it's, it's still kind of trying to find itself as a religious faith and as a, as a cultural form. One of the other places where this distinction between you know, insiders and outsiders or us and them or whatever it is shows up in this, this, this sentence is, is in the codes of chivalry that emerge in medieval Europe. So to, to what extent are these codes of chivalry do they function or do they see themselves as um, legal or um, customary limits on the use of violence? Chivalry was never intended to be a, a universal normative legal system. Um, chivalry was, was actually intended to govern the behavior of the, of the milites, or the, the knights, of course they were called milites, which is the basis to our term military. But the knights were the uh, were in most cases noblemen or people of noble extraction who fought on behalf of a sovereign. And um, uh, over time, a code arises which we identify with chivalry, which was supposed to govern the relations in battle between, really between noblemen, between the milites and their and their battles against each other. Now, over the course of time, courts of chivalry do arise, especially in in, um, in England and in uh, in France. You have have um, courts of chivalry in which offenses against the chivalric order um, are actually actually tried. But make no mistake about it, there was no no expectation that chivalry would extend beyond the relations of these Christian noblemen knights with each other in, the, in their battles. And for that reason, then, a, a nobleman was not in any way restricted in his dealings with um, the commoners, you know, with the foot soldiers who, who hailed from peasant backgrounds, for example. Chivalry did not apply to them, and we, we have from the historical records, it's very clear we have evidence of uh, what we today would call war crimes committed uh, with impunity. By noblemen upon uh, upon commoners, and, and they were not held accountable for this, either legally or normatively, because they were dealing with their social inferiors. There was an attitude on the part of the aristocrats, upon the, the knights and, and um, their commanders, that um, that a commoner who raises his weapons against a knight, in any event, 
um, is usurping his proper function within feudal society. And the feudal society, his proper function in feudal society is to be servile, is to, is to recognize his place and not to, to use devices like the crossbow, for example, or yeah. the police, you know, some, some of these early, um, or the early weapons of mass destruction. It's interesting <laughs> to hear. Uh, that's more or less how, how they were referred to huh. at the time. The mass destruction, they were considered extremely violent. Why? Because a, a, a commoner, a foot soldier, could use a crossbow to shoot a, a knight off of a horse and, and kill him. Uh, without actually engaging him in battle. Of course, the, the peasant oftentimes did not have adequate uh, uh, training in, in, in combat, did not even, even have adequate uh, arms in most cases. And so it was always at a, at a perpetual disadvantage in dealing with, uh, with a knight. But once the crossbow was developed, then uh, the commoner was able to level the playing field and could actually kill the knight. Um, that, that, that advantage the knights had, had possessed um, was offset. And so we see efforts, believe it or not, to, to, uh, to make it illegal for people to use the crossbow, supposedly because it was too violent. The real reason is because it enabled the commoners to <laughs> fight back effectively against, against the knights, against the aristocrats. But, uh, but we, we see, we see uh, really horrific war crimes committed by, by knights on commoners in combat. Um, I won't get into the details, but uh, I, I talk about some of the cases in the book. But they are they're every bit as horrific as war crimes committed you know, during World War II or huh. even today in, in Syria. Uh, they're every bit as bad and as violent and as uh, as homicidal. Uh, but it was not considered a violation of chivalry because they were committed against commoners. So there were limitations, very very real limitations on chivalry. It was not so a universal code of of law or even of ethics. So this is maybe an interesting time to, to pull back a little bit, um, because one of the things in your book, one of the themes that emerges is this, this distinction between a theoretical, maybe even a philosophical discussion about limitations and violence and the kind of customs of practice that emerge. So, so looking before the 1800s, to what degree are there connections between people who are writing about this and people who are actually doing the fighting? What's really striking, or at least was striking for me as I, as I prepared the book, was the relative disconnection between the theory of constraint, you know, the theory of the law of war, and the actual practice of the law of war. And you find theoreticians going back into the ancient world, uh, people like Cicero, for example, the Stoics, uh, who were very influential in, in Cicero and actually gave rise to, uh, to some fairly sophisticated thinking about, about natural law and the idea of a universal sense of justice which ought to prevail in people's relations with each other, not just between you know, people within the same society, but between uh, between societies that are involved in military conflict. But of course, the Romans paid very little attention to that. Cicero could write his books, that's all well and good, but the Roman legion would do pretty much what it wanted to do. Uh, there's no, there was no, no uh, uh, overarching authority that would impose Ciceronian uh, ideas of restraint and decency on the Roman legions and their dealings with uh, the Carthaginians or with their dealings with any of the, you know, the, the people of, of, uh, of other countries, of other, other cultures whom they, whom they subdued and subjugated. Uh, and, and, and that's true you know, moving, moving forward as well. So 
And I know we're skipping over lots of material here for in the interest of time. And, and so I would encourage people who are listening, there, there's lots of good stuff in this this first half of the book that we're, we're touching on and then moving past. But, but it seems to me that you describe something of a watershed change that happens in the 19th century. Um, and one of the changes, I, I guess, or at least that I see you talking about, is the distinction between treaties that are bilateral treaties and treaties that emerge out of a process of multilateral negotiation. Um, so, so first of all, I guess, am I reading that right? And, and if I am, why is there this sudden move that we see reflected in the Geneva and the Hague agreements to, to a broader, more multinational approach? Well, one of the chief limitations, of course, of, of a bilateral treaty, which, which were the typical treaties, really, uh, up, up until the late 19th and early 20th century. But most treaties were bilateral. That is, and again, for those who maybe are not are, are new to these legal concepts, uh, bilateral is, is a treaty involving two parties. Uh, the, the most conspicuous limitation is that um, that whatever is agreed upon is restricted entirely to the to the two parties involved to that treaty. It obviously would have no binding uh, influence upon other uh, non-parties to the agreement. Whereas a multilateral treaty, which sometimes would begin as bilateral a bilateral agreement, but might uh, actually attract signatories from other other countries as well. The advantage of a multilateral treaty is that it, was, it applies to more countries, and uh, the more countries that are involved, then uh, the more under international law uh, each individual country must seek to comply with the terms of that treaty. Why it is that uh, we see a movement in the direction of multilateral treaties by the late 19th century, I think, has a lot to do with uh, the increasing uh, destructiveness of warfare, mm. and uh, I try to, to a certain extent, to at least touch on that history in, uh, in my textbook. Again, I, I have page limitations, word limitations. I was not able to get into the kind of detail that maybe uh, I would have liked to, or that other scholars uh, might, might want. But I do touch upon the highly destructive nature of warfare, which is tied in with technology, with the development of of, uh, of rifling and in ballistics. Uh, the development of uh, of, of, of long-range um, ballistic technology, uh, such as machine guns, by the end of the 19th century, uh, which really just revolutionized the the destructiveness of warfare. Um, not to mention the rise of, of national armies, uh, the, the, the so-called nation in arms ideal, which begins really with the French Revolution, and then becomes widely imitated um, in the in the century after the outbreak of the French Revolution, so the idea of the levée en masse, where people rally around uh, around the uh, around the nation state to defend it, so you have enormous citizen armies, which by the 19th century then are equipped with highly destructive technological capability, so that uh, the ability to harm the enemy grows substantially. So we, we move from the era of the pitched battle in the 18th century. To uh, to highly destructive you know, conflicts by the 19th, and so in the Crimean War, in the U.S. Civil War, in the Franco-Prussian War, the rates of lethality just really skyrocket, and uh, it's not surprising then that we see uh, international jurists and, and politicians beginning to talk about the need for multilateral treaties, not just bilateral treaties that can involve uh, combatants who are directly engaged with each other, but actual multilateral treaties that can stem this tide of 
of hyper-destructiveness and, of, of, and, and, uh, and reduce the carnage, especially the unnecessary carnage of warfare. So if people have heard, non-specialists anyway, have heard anything about um, conventions about violence, they've heard about the Geneva and the Hague Agreements. So, so maybe you could say a little bit about what kinds of violence the Geneva and Hague Agreements tried to limit and what kinds of I don't know, people or organizations were subject to those limits. Geneva was, was chiefly driven by the desire to reduce uh, the suffering of soldiers, of combatants in, in warfare. Of course, the most immediate impulse to Geneva was, was the Crimean War, and it goes back, to, of course, to Henri Dunant and his, um, his book on his experiences at the batter, Battle of uh, Solferino. Uh, in which he, he saw thousands and thousands of wounded individuals just lying on the battlefield and um, with, without access to medical care, without access to any um, uh, ameliorative, you know, any kind of uh, medication that could uh, assuage their suffering and uh, people crying out in, 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 in pain, perishing on, on the battlefield in agony. And, and Dunant was extremely moved by this and he becomes the driving force then behind what eventually will become, of course, the creation of the International Red Cross mm -hmm. and the first of a series of Geneva Conventions, the first being in 1864. But the focus of Geneva was on the suffering of, of, of soldiers, and uh, it, it tried to, uh, to, to provide a multilateral basis upon which countries would agree that in warfare they would, um, they would extend medical care and the opportunity for medical care in particular to uh, to other soldiers uh, on uh, on the enemy side. Uh, what became clear by the end of the 19th century was that uh, Geneva and also some other uh, conventions, uh, like the Brussels Declaration and uh, the Oxford Manual and some others, well, were not uh, attentive enough to other uh, protected persons or persons that should should enjoy protection under the laws of war, especially civilians. And so there, there was some effort to re rectify this by the late 19th century through the, through the first Hague Conference in 1899. A second one then is convened in 1907. Um, and it's here where we see, for the first time, an effort to develop an international, uh, an international treaty, a binding international treaty, that would uh, elicit uh, concern and protection for uh, for civilians in in, uh, in wartime, and as it turns out, even the Hague Convention was not not adequate uh, to the task of really fully protecting civilians and non-combatants. Um, and so we see then later on by uh, 1929, there's another effort to to uh, to uh, reform the uh, the Geneva Conventions. That effort uh, dies a borning, unfortunately, uh, chiefly because of, uh, of the rise of uh, fascism, Hitler's coming to power in 1933, and, and the, the, uh, the telescoping then down towards the Second World War, which broke out in 1939. So th this, this effort to change Gene Geneva uh, uh, is aborted until after the war, and of course we see then, uh, after 1945, efforts to to really overhaul the Geneva Conventions and make them um, more attuned to uh, the suffering and the lives and well-being of, of civilians caught up in warfare. And of course, this also involves important distinctions uh, between international conflicts and um, 
and, and insurgencies that grow up within a nation state that maybe are not international, but but might be it might be desirable to extend the protections of international law to people involved in them. So we see by 1949 there are four Geneva Conventions that are passed. And common to each of them is, is Article 3, which tries to extend the protections of Geneva to conflicts uh, not of an international character, is the phrase that is used. So presumably that, that would apply to, uh, to situations of um, um, in, in, involving civil wars, involving insurgencies of groups against the government. And um, common Article 3 today is probably the most important single protection afforded to uh, domestic insurgencies and to, uh, to internal discords within countries. And yet, if I remember the book right, there's there's significant argument about that, right? That there, there's certainly figures at these conventions and military figures outside of them who are arguing against the limitations on violence, presumably because that would impact their ability to achieve their objectives. Exactly right. Yeah, it's the, the age-old problem of military necessity, which, again, is, is, is not a new, as I, dis, as I discovered in my, in my research for the book, is not a new phenomenon. I mean, you, you find uh, Indian commentators uh, a couple huh. thousand years ago talking about this as well, like uh, one named Kautilya, who was, was such a real politiker, you know, such, a, such an huh. advocate of pragmatism and, 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 and of really of... Uh, of expedience in the waging of war that, that he violates uh, the most fundamental tenet of the law of war that we find everywhere in civilization, which is the prohibition of poison. Huh. Right? Something you find in virtually every culture uh, condemns the deployment of poison as a weapon against the enemy. Well, not, not Kautilya. Kautilya, commentator, Indian commentator on the Indian law of war, who believed that uh, under certain circumstances it was perfectly fine to use poison if it enabled you to win. <laughs> this, is, this is the essence of military necessity. And the human race, um, and I say human race because I think this is transcultural, has, has struggled with the concept of military necessity yeah. for several thousand years, and we see it even today. Because if you have a situation in which some enormous good is hanging in the balance, if you can achieve victory by committing a crime, uh, the temptation is going to be to commit the crime if that is what is deemed necessary to achieve the overriding good that you're seeking. And uh, not surprisingly, we see departures from the law of war in situations in which um, policymakers, you know, whether they're government officials, whether they're, they're military commanders, think they can achieve a victory. They can um, have a breakthrough triumph by simply disregarding the law of war and committing war crimes, at least acts that would be considered to be violations of, of the law of war, to be grave breaches in the, in the language of the Geneva Conventions, um, and therefore illegal under international law. But, uh, but we see over and over again, whether it's, whether it's in the Algerian conflict in the 1950s, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's in um, the Vietnam War, uh, the United States involvement in Vietnam in the 1960s, and most recently, of course, the, what the Bush administration had called the global war on terror, you know, with the, uh, beginning with 9-11 and then the invasion of Iraq, we see this tendency to elevate uh, military necessity and expedience above, above international law. So 
surely people at these conferences in the 19th century understood this. So how did they envision the agreements that they oversaw and signed being enforced? Yeah, well, that's, that's an exceedingly important but, but very, very complicated question, of course. Uh, that this, is, this is the problem that has bedeviled yeah. international law forever. <laughs> and it's for this reason that many people, uh, including even today, the skeptics will say that there's no such thing as international law. Mm -hmm. You will still find law professors uh, in American law, law schools who will declare uh, ex cathedra. They'll, they'll simply declare that there's no such thing as international law. Why? Because it's, it's not really enforceable. Uh -huh. Well, in, in point of fact, it is kind of enforceable, <laughs> even though it has been um, – not as widely enforced, say, as domestic law would be. There have been efforts to enforce uh, enforce its terms. We do have today um, various judicial bodies that try to enforce um, the Geneva Conventions and the Hague Conventions and the, Gen and the Genocide Convention as well. You look at um, certainly the ad hoc uh, tribunals for Yugoslavia formed in the 1990s dealing with the crimes committed during the Balkan Wars. And of course, Rwanda, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. There's uh, another UN tribunal that is formed in Cambodia to try to tackle the crimes of the Khmer Rouge in the 1970s. Um, so th there are bodies that uh, have been constituted, as well as the International Criminal Court, which is the first uh, true international court, permanent international court, devoted to protecting the interests of international humanitarian law which came into being in 1998. So we, we do have <clears throat> judicial bodies that seek to enforce um, these principles. But of course, uh, enforcement is only as effective as um, the nation states, especially the superpowers of the world, are willing to allow it to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we know that the United States has certainly done everything it can to, uh, to exempt the United States and its citizens from uh, ever being prosecuted, say, in the International Criminal Court. Yeah, um, I was actually going to ask you: Do, do the art, does responsibility to protect and the ICC do they? Is this a conceptually new idea, or is this just kind of an intensification of an older understanding of limits on violence and human rights? Well, I, I, tr I try to suggest in my textbook that these concerns have been around a long, long time. Again, yeah. going back going back to the ancient world. Uh, uh, documents like the Mahabharata uh, or the Rig Veda, some of these ancient Indian texts, uh, the Manusmriti, uh, called the Book of Manu. Uh, there, there are numerous Indian texts. Uh, you find comparable uh, you know, customs reduced to, uh, uh, in, in some cases, reduced to writing in the Koina Nomina of, um, of the Greeks. Uh, all of these express, to a certain extent, a concern for, uh, for the suffering of, of civilians. But of course, those concerns were always counterbalanced by exceptions, and mm. that was true really up until 1945. Consider, for example, the you know the, the, the time hallowed idea that that non-combatants should not be should not be deliberately harmed, you should not be in other words killed by by soldiers and in, in, in during combat. Well, there are numerous exceptions to that, um, and one of the exceptions was the, the concept of hostage taking and collective responsibility. Mm. Now, if, if, a, if, a if a military unit, if an army moves into uh, uh, an area that it's conquered and creates an occupying force within that territory, 
under you know, the traditional law of war, um, that army was, was able, if it wished to, to take hostages from the population. It could, it could arrest civilians who had nothing to do with the war and essentially hold them as sureties to guarantee against attacks launched against uh, the occupying forces. And if there was an attack made upon the occupiers, uh, the occupied government, you know, the military government there, would be justified in killing those civilians as a form of reprisal. And, and this this comes up actually after World War II in the context yeah. of a case tried at Nuremberg as one of the successor trials, uh, U.S. versus uh, von Lieb. Uh, actually, there were a couple of them, von Lieb and von List, but, but they involved generals who were active in the Balkans during the uh, German occupation of Yugoslavia who were charged with... Um, um, with, with killing civilians, and, and their defense was that they had taken these, these civilians as hostages. And so that when partisan bands in Yugoslavia attacked the German army, the Germans asserted their right under the traditional law of war to execute hostages in reprisal. Um, and that principle, by the way, was was even recognized by by the U.S. court that presided over uh, the Germans' case. Huh. Now, the Germans didn't get away with it, as, as it turns out, because their response was considered to be disproportionate. They had uh, had executed too many civilians and not you know, an appropriate number uh, that was proportionate to the, the attacks on the, on the German army. And so they were held, you know, held, guilt, uh, held to be guilty and to be responsible for, uh, for those attacks on civilians. But the principle of hostage-taking was actually upheld. It was the most controversial verdict passed by an American court uh, at Nuremberg. But uh, so, as you can see, though, the, the, these principles hollowed out to a certain extent some of the protections against civilians. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. there's a longstanding uh, uh, understanding or principle that you should not uh, uh, wantonly attack civilians, but you could take some as hostages and hold them collectively responsible for attacks upon your forces. Now, of course, in 1949, the Geneva Conventions are passed, and they explicitly prohibit any such hostage-taking, any such uh, you know, collective reprisal against civilians, which is you know, a major movement forward in the history of international humanitarian law. That was not always the case. So, um, you, you, you mentioned these trials. So, given given the interest of people who are probably listening to this podcast, can I ask you to spend, spend just a little bit of time talking about um, the effort to try some of the planners and perpetrators with Armenia, and whether that effort fits into the broader kind of halting efforts to hold the German to hold Germans accountable for war crimes, or whether that's something conceptually different. This history is exceedingly unfortunate from one angle, uh, because, of course, uh, allied trials of Turkish perpetrators never took place. Um, yeah. it, it, despite uh, a provision of the original treaty, uh, Treaty of Savre, uh, which was eventually replaced by the Treaty of Lausanne, uh, but the original Savre Treaty provided specifically for trials of, um, of Turkish perpetrators involved in the Armenian Genocide. And we know that chiefly because of you know, political considerations, um, uh, a decision is made to, uh, to exclude that language from the successor treaty that would govern relations with the Turks. And um, that language about, about a trial of Turkish perpetrators was excised, and the entire effort collapsed yeah. so that uh, 
so many of the perpetrators were not uh, not held accountable in, in in an international court, although originally there was an intention to to move forward with that. What's interesting is that this history, this abortive history, uh, in the Allied intention to to prosecute uh, Turks for genocide, then comes back uh, in 1945 and 1946, and we, we see you know, Allied policymakers making reference to the failures to deal with Turkish perpetrators after World War One as a justification now for. Uh, for prosecuting Nazi war criminals as, as well as Japanese war criminals in the Pacific. Uh, the idea was to try to avoid the, um, the debacle of, uh, of impunity enjoyed by Turkish perpetrators after World War I. And by the so way, that, you, you probably yeah. know this already, but maybe some of your listeners aren't aware, uh, many, many of the top-ranking perpetrators of the violence were in fact assassinated by mm -hmm. Armenian assassins. Mm -hmm. The 1920s, just going to show that you know if, if if a court does not exist that can prosecute these awful crimes and provide some sense of justice to to people in society, then people will seek redress in other ways. They will take the, the they will take the, the law into their own hands, and they will return to a form of law which was called the, the blood feud. This is the mm -hmm. Hatfield and the McCoys, right? People helping themselves to private justice, and this is what happens in the 1920s. So four or five of the top Young Turk leaders are gunned down, uh, killed by Armenian assassins. Yeah, it's so, and there's a good discussion of these trials, actually. I think his name is Gary Bass. I think the book is Stay the Hand of Justice or something like that. Um, Hand of Vengeance, I think. So vengeance, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that jumps out at me, you talk about this period as one where you have a new kind of maybe, I don't know if it's a justification or an explanation or a, a basis, but there's a new kind of understanding about why war crimes are wrong. And you talked at the beginning of the interview about how the, the, the limits on violence in the ancient world were not based on humanitarian concerns, but all of a sudden humanitarian, that word has crept into our discussion. So how influential is this new idea that people should be that limitations on violence should be um, should be derived from an inherent belief in the the value of all people, regardless of their religious identity or national identity. Is that is it? How does that work? Yeah, I, I think that this has become the reigning philosophy behind both international humanitarian law, which again is is Geneva, and it's the Hague. That those two mm. treaties and their principles are bundled together under this concept of international humanitarian law. When I use that phrase, that's what I'm talking about, Geneva and, and Hague. Um, humanitarianism now, I think, informs both of those conventions, but also, of course, human rights. And, and human rights is a much more recent sort of uh, legal phenomenon, um, which now has converged with international humanitarian law in the sense that both of these, uh, of these legal regimes are concerned primarily to reduce uh, suffering, especially unnecessary suffering, and to, and to extend protections to certain groups of people who are not involved in um, uh, in military operations. Th this is this is the primary uh, tenet of contemporary international criminal law, inter international human rights, and international humanitarian law. Um, the idea, however, is very ancient, as, as you know. I mean, it goes back uh, into, the, into the ancient world. I talk a little bit about this in the first chapter of my book, where I discuss the, uh, the old concept of, uh, of the axial age, uh, an idea advanced by the German philosopher Karl Jaspers, 
many years ago uh, in a book, The Goal of History. I think it's, it was translated. I think it's called The Goal of History in English. But he advanced this idea that, that, that between 200 and uh, 700, 800 BCE, you see this extraordinary flowering of ethical consciousness uh, throughout the ancient world. And it's not just in one culture, it's in one culture after another, both in East and West. And uh, the question is, how can we account for this remarkable flowering? Uh, we, we, do see, we do see um, philosophers... Um, and every so often, even even a, a political ruler like uh, like Ashoka, the, the Buddhist uh, the Buddhist ruler in India, who express a humanitarian concern for reducing the suffering of war. But again, as I suggest in the book, I I don't see this humanitarian attitude taking root and affecting the conduct of armies. At least not right away. It takes, mm-hmm. quite frankly, it takes a few couple thousand years, really, until the, 19, uh, the 1800s and the 1900s, before these humanitarian insights, which I would suggest go back at least to the, uh, the Axial Age, of the first century BCE, before the, these, these ethical and religious uh, and humanitarian insights begin to uh, inspire people to use the law as a way to reduce um, the cruelty, the unnecessary suffering, um, and the savagery of warfare, and to do so explicitly for the purpose of reducing suffering. So, I know, I know, I, sadly, right now, I know the existence, the, the the challenge that word limits are, are are can present you as I'm in the process of cutting twenty five thousand words in the next six weeks. But so I know that there are limitations what you could do in the book. But I wonder, given without those limitations in, in this interview, are there are there strands of thinking about war crimes or about limitations on violence in in the modern world that come that are outside of this tradition you've laid out that kind of mostly is a Western tradition? Um, are there ideas or, or arguments or perspectives on this from other parts of the world that we need to be aware of? Uh, again, this is this is a, a theme that. I primarily uh, announce in the first the first couple yeah. chapters of the book where I, I, I do delve into uh, developments in India and in China, especially in the ancient world, before kind of gradually moving in the direction yeah. of, of Greece and Rome. We, we spend some time talking about the Islamic world. Um, again, because of, of page limitations and word limitations, I, ha- I had to adopt a, a principle of or, a principle of organization in the book. It really took um, the concept of continuity very seriously. It was one of the ways in which I was able to exclude some material that maybe I was tempted to put in and include other materials which, uh, which were important. And the organizing principle was this. I, I, I was trying to come up with a, a narrative of sorts of how it is that we arrived at humanitarian law in, yeah. by, by the late 19th century and certainly 20th century and now 21st century. How is it that we've arrived to where we are? And so, perforce, a great deal of the book is, quite frankly, focused on on Western culture or cultures that are you know, have been inspired by or culturally influenced by the West. Now, I try to counterbalance that to a certain extent by looking at tr- traditions in India and uh, traditions in China um, and, and references to, to Islamic culture. But, but for the most part, uh, my narrative... It looks at, at uh, Greece, at Rome, 
the Middle Ages and, and its, its uh, especially its uh, development of the law of chivalry, and then eventually the uh, the age of exploration in which Europe uh, colonizes vast vast tracts of the Earth's surface. Uh, so, so I guess if, if a criticism could be made of the book, it might be that there is not a, enough attention paid to some of these alternative traditions, such as you were describing. Um, I would have liked to have gotten into maybe more detailed consideration of, of modern-day India. Um, mm. I think it was uh, was it Indira Gandhi who said that, uh, that that so much of modern Indian law, especially in its approach to uh, uh, to warfare, has been shaped by Ashoka, you know, hmm. which is an extraordinary statement and one that would be worthy of exploring. Um, so I guess if, if there was one uh, you know, limitation in the book, it's not quite as um, um, as balanced in its in the net that it casts as maybe I, I would have liked it to be. But again, you have limited time, and it was important to talk about some of these developments growing mm-hmm. out of uh, World War One and especially World War Two, which has been so formative. Uh, the Nuremberg jurisprudence, in particular, I, yeah. I, I just felt that in, in, instead of if I had talked at great length about the Mayans or the Aztecs, and I was at one point collecting materials on this uh, on this theme, then I would have had to have omitted Nuremberg, or at least mm-hmm. severely cut back Nuremberg. And as as we know, Nuremberg is the cradle of modern-day international humanitarian law and human rights law. There's just no way in good conscience that I could do that. So perhaps in a subsequent edition of the book, I can I can address <laughs> some of the, these other... <laughs> I'm actually thinking about maybe approaching the publisher if, if uh, yeah. they're so disposed. But that would require expanding the book. And it's as you know, it's a matter of finances and markets. And um, if there was a market for it, I'm sure they would be you know amenable to that idea. But that'll be that'll be the question, and uh, so perhaps I'd have an opportunity to address some of these alternative conceptions that, that, that you're alluding to. So Mike and I know each other uh, for have known each other for quite a while, and I can now see the look on his wife's face as she imagines her couch once again covered by textbook after textbook after textbook. I need a dedicated couch. That's what I. There need. you go. <laughs> hey, we've taken a lot of your time. Um, I always conclude by asking. Um, the same kind of questions at the end. Uh, and the first one, and, and I know you and I have talked about it a little bit, um, maybe you could suggest a book or two um, that people who listen to the podcast that, that, that were, have been important to you in shaping your thinking on these kind of issues that, that listeners might want to read. Sure. There actually are several that I could uh, I could mention. Uh, a couple of them are books that I cite in uh, in my textbook, A World History of War Crimes. And I found the books to be not only helpful uh, in my own thinking about the law of war in history, but they're just fascinating books. They're great. Both of them are great reads. And um, I think one of them probably has reached a wider audience than the other. The, the, the one that I think is fairly well known has reached a pretty broad audience is John Keegan's A History of Warfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, just Keegan is such a gifted pro stylist and uh, r- writes with verve, and uh, but also with with great factual knowledge. He's a, he was a real um, a real expert in this in this area of study. Uh, and of course, he goes back much as I try to do in the textbook. He goes back into the into the origins of uh, of, uh, of civilization, back to the the city states of Sumer, and, and, and traces the development forward. 
so I, I would highly recommend Keegan's book. It's very engaging. It's a great read and, and, and not only enjoyable, but you can learn a great deal from him. I would also recommend uh, another book that I drew upon um, in my own work. It's, it's maybe requires more of a uh, more of a, an intellectual commitment in, t- in terms of just kind of working through it because it's it's a very very uh, detailed book, uh, I think a, a demanding book in a lot of ways. But for someone who hangs in there with it, it's, it really rep- uh, it really pays dividends for your understanding of religion in particular. It's a book by the late Robert Bella called Religion and Human Evolution. Hmm. Uh, a book that was really a cornerstone to the first chapter in particular of my of my study and and Bella I think has has been was was influenced by by Jasper's idea of the axial age and that eventually becomes for me one of the one of the frameworks in which I try to to uh, to portray the the early, the early history in particular of the law of war that I, I deal with in the book. Um, there are a couple of German books too. I, I suspect that you might have some um, some mm-hmm. German. Speakers so. Uh, one of the books has actually been translated into English. Uh, you can read it in German or in English. Uh, the German is uh, well, it's by Sebastian Hafner. It's been out for quite a while. Hafner, H-A-F-F-N-E-R. Um, a fairly well-known book. I think it came out in the 70s. Uh, has been uh, has gone through multiple editions. It, this is the kind of uh, staying power that academics can only dream of. Right? <laughs> you, you, write, you write a book you know, 45 years ago, and it's still in print and still selling like gangbusters. And that's what it's what Hafner's book is done. It's in German. It's called Anmerkungen zu Hitler, uh, and it's been I think translated as the meaning of Hitler in English. I've recommended this book to numerous people um, uh, as, as I, I think, the best introduction, the most uh, uh, concise statement of, uh, of Hitler from a variety of perspectives. He has foreign policy, his ability to come to power, why it was that he was able to seize the imagination of so many people in Germany at the time, how, it, how he was able to to preserve his, uh, his his power even as uh, the war was was, was uh, uh, slipping from his grasp in the 40s, you know why, how was he able to continue to command so much uh, obedience from the German population? And they, all of these these topics and a lot more are addressed in about 178 pages in his book. So I recommend that one very very highly. And then finally, I'll recommend another German book. Insofar as I know, this has not been translated into English. It's uh, a book. On the Kommissar order, it's called, called Kommissar Befehl in German, by Felix Römer. I talk about the Kommissar order in uh, in my World History of War Crimes, and uh, some members of, uh, of your listening audience may, may know about the, the Kommissar order already. But that was the order issued to German troops uh, before the invasion of the Soviet Union in June of 1941 to uh, uh, to segregate from their Soviet prisoners of war, those individuals who were commissars, that is, you know, these, these, uh, these ideological watchdogs who were assigned uh, to Red Army units, and uh, they were to be taken and separated from, from the other prisoners of war and es- essentially shot. Uh, and this, this, this gave rise to, to waves of, of war crimes, of, of, uh, of uh, uh, mass executions of, of, of Soviet of Soviet prisoner, prisoners of war in uh, the summer of 1941 and in the fall of 1941. So Rummer does an excellent job uh, providing the history of the Kommissar Befehl and, and traces out 
you know, empirically uh, with, with voluminous amounts of, of, of evidence, uh, his contention that, that most of the German, uh, German units who received uh, this Kolmosov this fail followed it to the letter. A lot of the generals after the war tried to distance themselves from it, you know, claiming that they, they either disregarded the order or, or told, their, told their soldiers to stand mm-hmm. out and not to enforce it, but, but uh, rumors of the belief that, um, that a great majority of them did, in fact, follow the order. And this is a really first-rate history. You, it does require a commitment, though. It's a big, tough German monograph. Uh, you, know, you know of what I speak. It's, uh, yes, I do. Indeed. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, but, but again, it's a superbly done uh, monograph that I think would be of interest to anybody concerned with um, war crimes and history. So the last question in just a few seconds. Um, you've, this is your third book. What, what might be your fourth? Well, I'm in the midst of thinking that through right now, and there's a project that I'm, I'm trying to develop. Um, to a certain extent, it's, it's in response to the recent um, trial of John Demyanyuk, who's a Cleveland auto worker who uh, was proven to be uh, to have been a, a guard at Sobibor. You may recall back in the 80s, there were, there were allegations that he was uh, a notorious war criminal named Ivan the Terrible, alleged to have worked at Treblinka and to have escaped uh, Poland after the war. And uh, he stood trial in Jerusalem at one point and was actually convicted and sentenced to death. And then the Israeli Supreme Court over, overturned his conviction. And, and they sent him back to the United States, uh, at which point he had his citizenship restored. But then his citizenship was revoked yet again, a second time, when it was shown that he had, in fact, been a Nazi death camp guard, but he had been at Sobibor rather than Treblinka, so they sent him actually back to, to Munich to stand trial in a German court and uh, charged with um, complicity to, to murder uh, under German law. Uh, and he was convicted in 2011. His, his trial is quite significant uh, in the history of German law because it represents a real watershed. You know, for the first time, German courts were willing to find um, a death camp guard guilty, even though there was no direct evidence of a specific criminal act that that person had committed um, in the death camp. So all, all they had on Demyanyuk was, was evidence that he had served in the camp. Um, in the years prior to 2011, that would have led to an acquittal for lack of, uh, of a concrete criminal act that could be proven against the individual. Mere service at the, you know, prior to 2011, mere service in a death camp was not considered enough to sustain a case of homicide against uh, a defendant. But in 2011, the Germans broke with their, their old practice and instead were willing to, um, to find Demjanja to guilty. And they uh, convicted him of homicide and uh, of a murder, actually. And, uh, sentenced him to jail. He, he died just a few months after his conviction. But I, I, I'm interested in, in how the Germans have arrived at, uh, at, at a certain sympathy or a receptivity to this notion of collective responsibility within the context of death camp cases. So I, I'm interested in going back and ex- exploring you know, the roots of collective responsibility, again, looking at, at uh, cultural history, cultural legal history in particular, looking at, at uh, some of the post-war trials done by the Poles who also develop a concept of collective responsibility for death camp guards at Auschwitz in particular. And, uh, of course, the Americans as well in their, in their military trials at Dachau develop similar ideas. So that, that more or less is, uh, is the direction I'm headed in with what I hope to be my fourth book. 
Well, when it's done, I hope you'll come back on the show. Uh, but I want to say thank you very much. Um, and it's a great book, and I encourage people to read it. And until we talk to you again, thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Michael Bryant about his new book, A World History of War Crimes. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join us next time when I'll interview John Roth about his new book, edited work, Losing Trust in the World, Holocaust Scholars Confront Torture. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month. Thank you.